Shalom, this is Reverend John Ferret, and we are now in Lesson 88 in the continuing story of Joseph. And just wanted to let you guys know that all of these podcasts are also available on YouTube. If you go to the website, www.lightofmenorah.org, and Light of Menorah, treated as one word. Menorah is spelled M-E-N-O-R-A-H, lightofmenorah.org. And you go there. At the top of the page, at the top of the home page, you're going to see uh, a place to click for YouTube channel. And if you click on that, you'll go to YouTube, and then at that YouTube channel for Light of Menorah, you'll be able to see a word above there that you can select called playlists and what I've done is I've organized all of the podcasts into logical groupings so for instance we're in the book of Genesis we're in Genesis 39 and this is lesson 88 so there is one playlist that's on Genesis and it has all once this one is uploaded all 88 lessons and all the lessons that I'm doing on the book of Genesis in order However, the story of Joseph is unique. The story of Joseph is very special, so I've created a special playlist just on the story of Joseph. And you're going to find that true for so many of the things that I'm doing. It's like in the uh, podcast on the book of Exodus, we came to Genesis chapter 20, the first 17 verses, and that's the Ten Commandments. So it's in the podcast on the book of Exodus, but it's also in a special podcast, the, the Ten Commandments, in a podcast playlist called the Ten Commandments. And you'll be able to find all of those playlists there at the YouTube channel. And that is the easiest way for being able to find specific podcasts or specific topics that you're looking for. Well, in Lesson 88, we're in Genesis 39, and we're in verses basically 6 through 16. And now Joseph faces trouble with Mrs. Potiphar. Because Mrs. Potiphar, she's got the hots for Joseph. She's after him. Now in Hebrew, it says that Joseph is well-built and really good to look at. We get this from Dennis Prager in his book, The Rational Bible, the book of Genesis, as he's doing his commentary on the book of Genesis. So the Hebrew basically means that Joseph is well built, well put together, and very good to look at. Now there's only two other people in the entire Bible where this Hebrew phrase is used. It's Sarah, Abraham's wife, and Rachel. If you remember, Jacob saw Rachel at the well and she was exceedingly beautiful. She was hot. Joseph, okay, um, he's a hunk at the age of 17. And what's very interesting, it's the only time in the entire Bible where this phrase that a man is well-built and good to look at is used, and it's only for Joseph. So Mrs. Potiphar is trying to seduce him. Now, Joseph realizes that in ancient Egypt, that adultery 
is a capital offense, except the husband can actually pardon the wife and save her from being executed. But in ancient Egypt, it's considered a religious crime because they wanted to prevent immorality from spreading throughout society. In, in ancient Egypt, the family was held in high self-esteem. So, we have the Egyptian gods are condemning adultery and they're false gods. And we say, what about Yahweh? What about our Lord, the one God, the only God, the true God? And perhaps this is Joseph's reasoning. If this is true in Egypt, and the gods of Egypt are against adultery, how much more is it in the, the line of the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Now the rabbis of Judaism and all their commentaries and the things that they teach on the story of Joseph, they understood the difficulty that it is to resist a woman's, um, you might say, aggressive uh, coming after a guy, and it's very difficult to resist that. And the rabbi said, Joseph is, boy, I'm an amazing guy, and he's highly exalted and highly admired in Judaism because he resisted. Matter of fact, when it got too much for him, he ran. And God is showing us men then, and he's showing us men now. Don't fool around with sexual temptation. Don't fool around with sexual lust. Run! Yahweh taught it then in the Torah, and it continues all the way through Paul. If you can go to 2 Timothy 2.22, 2 Timothy 2, chapter 2, verse 22, Paul is teaching Timothy, flee, run, youthful lusts, and pursue righteousness. Paul is even, in his own words, implying that don't mess around with sexual temptation. So, let's go. Let's return to the events in the life of Joseph and continuing to see Joseph as a paradigm, as a prototype of Jesus, who's the coming Messiah. So you ready? Here we go. just did four or five verses, right? So here's Joseph. He's 17. He's become the overseer in the house of Potiphar. And Potiphar is the captain of the guard. The captain of the guard is Potiphar. Potiphar is the captain of the guard. This is huge. This guy is very, very high up in the power structure of Pharaoh's court. What's the guard? We don't know exactly, Mike. It's interesting because when you take a look at Potiphar 
and the Hebrew words that are used for his titles, and we go back to Egyptian administration and under Pharaoh, there's a lot of guesses. We're, the Hebrew and the uh, hieroglyphs don't match, okay? So it's really a guess. The captain of the guard is probably a good translation, but the captain of the guard, what do you mean? Is it the bodyguard of Pharaoh that he's the captain of? Okay, that probably is it, okay? Uh, uh, still a lot of debate on that. But regardless, whatever his title was, he's a big dude. He's very, very, very important. Now, let me just stop here. What's happening? What's happening simultaneously right now? We just got done with Genesis 38. It's Judah and Tamar. This is happening at the same time. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, okay, you got the Judah and Tamar thing going on, and we got the Joseph. These are parallel stories, okay? So it's not an interruption. Do you see this? All of a sudden, these are parallel stories. Something amazing is happening. And I, I begin to wonder. It's like you said, Mike, before in your comment. One of them is the physical salvation, okay, the bread of the earth through Joseph. And the other one is a spiritual salvation that's going to come through Jesus that starts in Judah. And we've got parallel stories going on. Both are, and again, using Elhanan ben Abraham's book on Mashiach ben Yosef, we begin to see the paradigm, the connections between Joseph and Jesus. I just love that. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, it's Judah and Tamar. Now, here's the other thing. I brought this up. This is a number of weeks ago. We were studying Genesis 35. We're studying the last couple of verses in Genesis 35. Matter of fact, it was Genesis 35, 27 to 28 and 29. Jacob finally is back in the land and he and his brother Esau bury Isaac after he died. And that's in Genesis 35, 27, 28, 29. What I did for you then, because it really shocked me in reading the JPS Torah uh, commentary and other commentaries, Isaac, the death of Isaac, that was not chronologically correct. It's before, I mean, Genesis 35 is before the story of Joseph. And the JPS Torah commentary says this is chronologically incorrect. Isaac died after Joseph is in Egypt. And I said, what? No, I am not going to go through that again. Okay, it's very complex. Um, even if you are on audio, you can actually email you and I'll send you all the details. And it is quite amazing to see because it's biblical all the biblical dating, all the ages, it's right there. It's not opinion. It's very clear. The Bible says Isaac died, and he dies when Joseph is 29 years old. It's the last year that Joseph will be in prison. So what else is going on? you got Judah and Tamar, and what else is going on? Isaac is still alive. This is so important, and I want to bring this up right now. So you've got the Joseph story going along, right? He's 17. Now he's the chief steward, okay, of in Potiphar's house. In the meantime, as you laughed, meanwhile back at the ranch, you have Judah and Tamar. Meanwhile back at the ranch, who's alive? Isaac. He's not dead. Why would Judah go home? 
His grandpa died. He knew Isaac. That makes so much sense to me. All right, because his grandfather, this is, I, I mean, when you're a grandson and your father's dad, because Isaac is the Beit Av, he is the patriarch of the entire family. That's a high honor to come and so the family being together. We'll come back to that later on. This is critical. We have three stories going on. It, it, it's just amazing. Like I said, if you were interested in all the details about why the fact that Isaac died when Joseph is 29, you'll have to email me because we'll go through it again. We did that one time. Judah had sexual intercourse with Tamar, his daughter-in-law. He didn't know that she was his daughter-in-law. She was dressed as I did in the JPS Torah commentary last week. She was dressed as a cult prostitute of the Canaanites. They had a veil, that type of stuff. And normally the cult prostitute was near a shrine, okay? And many of the shepherds would go to the cult prostitutes during sheep shearing season, which is exactly what was happening in the story. So the answer to the question, did he go just to, to relieve himself, okay? Or was he doing something like, as it said in the ancient history of the Canaanites, actually participating with this cult prostitute so he'd have a blessing on the sheep shearing. We have no answer. You know, we have no answer. My guess would be, okay, I think he was kind of immersing himself in that culture. That, that's a guess. Um, but again, that is a, a guess only for the simple reason that he goes to the Canaanites, he marries Batshua, a Canaanite woman, he finds Tamar, which we proved last week was she was Canaanite, and he, he completely went away from his Beit Av, his the house of his father, which means he basically said that I've had, he's like a prodigal son. Okay, I don't want nothing to do with the Beit Av. I'm out of here. The the family was falling apart. You know the whole Beit Av. So it could very well be based upon that. Boy, it seems like maybe he's buying into this Canaanite stuff. You know, I wouldn't be surprised. But again, there's no answer. Back in Potiphar's home, and uh, Dr. Ailing, in his book, Egypt and Bible History from the Earliest Times to 1000 BC, Dr. Charles Ailing is a retired professor and Egyptologist here at Northwestern University and one of my first teachers. And this is an amazing, amazing archaeological count of Israel and Egypt, okay? But in reading... Uh, this, Dr. Ailing teaches us that Potiphar is not a name, only for the simple reason of certain vowel constructs and everything else. Uh, not vowel constructs, uh, but um, what am I trying to... Uh, articles, okay? Like the, okay? So, pa is a, a definite article, like the. And that's part of his name. His name is... Pade Padra, Padek Padra, the God Ra has given. So we don't know his name, but we got some sort of honorary title that his name is Pade, Padi, Padi Padra. Regardless, Potiphar is the captain of the guard, and the captain of the guard is Potiphar. So he's an important official, so important that the prison that Joseph goes to, hang on to this, the prison. It's in Potiphar's house. You'll see that in just a little bit. The Bible's very clear on that. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Now, the archaeology supports 
uh, so much in terms of the jobs that Joseph had. So when I go to Dr. Ailing's work, he's talking about, remember I talked to you about that papyrus? Okay, and the papyrus is the papyrus of the late Middle Kingdom, a book written by W.C. Hayes in 1955. And uh, Dr. Ailing is quoting that. And he said that um, from monuments of the Middle Kingdom, Halleck has compiled a list of Asiatic slaves, which presents a striking parallel to Joseph's employment. Uh, and in this papyrus, there were 90 names. They got that. So you got that one is coming from a temple, names, okay, of Asiatic slaves. And then also 90 names uh, that were in the papyrus. Uh, Asiatic household servants were among the most common in Egypt during the Middle Kingdom. Middle Kingdom is when Joseph's there. That's why I gave you the date of 1898. Okay? You need to know that date. That's Middle Kingdom. And that's so critical. It's not the Hyksos period. Totally not the Hyksos period. Couldn't be. Joseph fits the pattern well, beginning his servitude as a domestic servant alongside uh, his nationality. Then later on, he becomes the overseer and basically, in Egyptian hieroglyphics, it means the one who is over the house. Um, and the term house there has a broader meaning, the estate. I mean, he controlled it all. Okay? It is quite clear from many of the examples that the office of steward was fairly common. So what he became was fairly common uh, in ancient Egypt. One of the requirements to be chief steward was you needed to be literate. You needed to read and write and calculate. It was one of the prerequisites of the job. So you begin to wonder, where did he learn this? I, I find that fact. Where did he learn it? Everything that Potiphar had was blessed, including his possessions in the field, refers to Joseph's supervision of agriculture, and thus is a touch of authentic detail. But further, we see in Joseph's position as a supervisor of agriculture that the Lord prepared him for his remarkable achievements in the upcoming days of the famine. So I find it, it is interesting, and that's what Ailing is saying, is that here he's working and supervising the agricultural estate of Potiphar because that's how they made their money. It's ag basically an agricultural economy. And he's supervising that on a small scale, then later on on a much hard, higher scale. Now, Potiphar's wife, her name is Mrs. Potiphar. Just wanted to let you know. Okay. She's rich. She lives in luxury. She's got a really important husband. She's stuck at home, and she's bored to death. Now, that's an opinion held by one commentator, okay? But she's very rich. There's nothing to do, okay? This guy's very, very important. So she's around there, and then she's stuck at home with this guy, Joseph. Now, fascinatingly enough, in the Bible, Joseph is described in a certain way. He's the only male in the entire Bible that's described this way. The only one. There is no male that's described this way. He is described as To'ar Yafe Mare. To'ar Yafe Mare. Good looking and well built. In other words, a hunk. Okay? I mean, he's described this way. Fascinating enough. It's like the Torah is trying to say, why do you think she was just after this guy? So, I mean, she was really turned on by this guy. So no wonder with the attraction. Mrs. Potiphar, day after day, comes after Joseph. 
I mean, it's clear, okay? This is in Genesis 39.10. I won't read it. You know the story. You've, you've heard this before and so on. So you can actually take a look at 39.10, but it's day after day. Now, I, I got to stop here. There's something really cool. And I, get, I love the rabbis. They have a perspective on this day after day after day. What I learned, and again, I, I learned so much from a wonderful teacher like Dennis Prager. He said, when you go to the synagogue uh, and they have the cantor, and the cantor is the one, okay, who will recite the Torah, but he does it in a sing-song way, singing it. And what happens is the rabbis, when they'll show you this, they have cantillation marks on top of the Hebrew letters. I learned, and I, this is the first time I've, I've heard about the cantillation marks. So I've delved into this for the first time, so I'm no expert on it. But as Dennis Prager said, and from my reading, I read a couple of articles on it, this probably was common in Jesus' day. So in other words, when they're in the synagogue and they're reading Torah, they're singing it by the cantillation marks. The cantillation marks are notes. That's how people remember because it's a sing-song. Thank you. It's also called a trope. Okay, so if you take a look at cantillation marks, and they're also called a trope. I don't know why. Okay. The trope that we're interested in is called the shell chalet. The shell chalet. It's very unique in the Torah. It only occurs four times in the entire Torah, and it appears once here. Okay, on a specific word. Let me let you hear that cantillation mark, okay, as the singer, whoever that is, will do it on the word shashalet, okay? Here is the cantillation, shashalet, on the one word, shashalet. You ready? One more time. So the rabbi said, that's the sound. The word, okay, the phrase that's being used is vayi machen, okay? So the cantillation mark is over ma. So basically, I'm gonna try this, okay? I am no cantor. So it would be vahi ma. hen, okay? So when you're looking at that, the rabbis have a really fun way of looking at that because they say, why is that cantillation mark there? We don't know who put it there, but it's there. So the rabbis say, well, what that means is he resisted day after day after day again and again. And that's pretty cool. Okay, I like that. But then the rabbis would say, however, there's an alternative, okay? And that is, he was really tempted. And it took him a long time to resist. So you got the two. And, it, and it's really cool because human nature, who's to say that he wasn't tempted, that she was a beautiful woman? You know, we don't know. The Bible doesn't say, okay? So the rabbis are saying this with the cantillation mark. 
And I just wanted to show you that. I th thought it was just so cool. I never even saw that before. Uh, never even understood cantilever. I, I understood that they did this, but how rabbis can get, the rabbis can get some great meaning out of that. It's a, it's a pretty cool observation on that. So, Joseph, he refuses her. Day after day after day, he finally refuses her. There's three reasons why. Genesis 39, verses 7 through 9. And Joseph says, As it came to pass after these things, that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Yosef, again, who was <laughs> well put together, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, my master knows not what is with me in the house. My master knows not what is with me in the house. In other words, he trusts me completely. Okay? He's committed all that he has to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither has he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, I have to attribute this, what I'm about to do, to Dennis Prager on his audio commentary on the Torah. He went off for almost 30 minutes on these three reasons of him refusing to commit or to commit adultery. One of the things that he says, and I'm going to try to, I, I'm, I was just, it was so amazing because all of a sudden, well, I'll come to the conclusions in just a bit. He said the three reasons, your husband, my master, trust me. Number two, you are his wife. Uh, your husband, my master, has withheld, has withheld nothing from me except you. Okay, legally, you're his wife. I can't touch you. And to have sex with you is a sin against God. He's got those three. Now, what Dennis Prager had mentioned was really cool. He said, when we look at this Torah portion, and he said, ought, he said I'm trying for, for Jew and Christian alike to understand the Torah has instruction for us today. It is so applicable for us today. And he said, let's take a look at secular morality. Matter of fact, you could Google this. You could Google secular morality, and you will find deep discussions about it. Secular morality is morality to do good without God. And I was reading some secular humanists or others that were secular atheists and said, yes, you don't need God. You don't need his Bible and you can still do good. Really? Let me show you what I mean. That this is difficult. Abortion today is a good thing. You know in secular morality, those without God. Okay, I just witnessed the other day, I know at this time in our lives, we have a number of states here in the United States that are passing, uh, passing abortion laws to prohibit abortion um, at the time the heartbeat starts or they can hear the heartbeat of the baby saying that it's human. And uh, we're seeing so much reaction by those people who are without God or say even that they're with God that, no, that's wrong. So they're saying the states are wrong, that they're right, that they're doing good. So we, we have a difference of opinion here, quite clearly. 
Here's another one. I never knew this before. I never knew this until learning again from Dennis Prager. In October 1939, Hitler issued a proclamation that all mentally impaired Germans, Germans will be executed, which was preparation for the Holocaust. That started it. But they talked about the pure Aryan race. Hitler said it's good. That's secular morality. Without God, you can determine what your good is. Without God, you can determine what your bad is. Now, Joseph's first two reasons are secular. He's got two reasons. Remember three. His first two reasons, one, okay, was your husband, my master, trust me in everything. Okay, so therefore it's good not to have sex with you. It's a good thing because of trust. That's, set, that's secular. We would ba basically say the same thing. Okay, uh, that person trusted me. I don't want to dishonor their trust. The other one is uh, that woman is married, and so therefore I should not have sex with a married woman. We could say that. I mean, an atheist would say that. Okay, somebody who, I mean, a Buddhist would say that. I mean, on and on. But, matter of fact, what's very fascinating, in the 42 commandments of Ma'at, remember I talked about Ma'at? Ma'at is the goddess of, of truth and order and harmony, okay, uh, in Egypt, and the, and the Hebrews understood it. They had 42 commandments. Ma'at had 42 commandments. One of the commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. Interesting. Now their gods were pagan. God-based morality is very, very, very simple. God said no. Simple. No, ration, no rationalization, no argument. God said no. Period. And that's God-based morality. So when people say, are you, what, you know... What's your, what's your views of morality? You have to say, what type of morality? Se secular or God-based? Because those are the two types of morality. And in our culture today, one group that's basically secular moralists would say, this is good, but we're God-based moral, moral, and we'd say, no, that's not good, that's bad, because God said it. And there's where the battle comes in. So commandment number six. I just love this. In the King James Version, it says, thou shalt not kill. Now, let me just stop here a little bit because you will have people who will come to you and they'll say, see, you're not supposed to kill. You can't have war. Soldiers can't kill, okay? If you're really a believer, in the Old English of the King James in the, 15th, in the 1500s, that word kill was a synonym for murder. It was used that way. Today it's not. But you will have people come and challenge you because they don't understand the King James and how it was written. The word kill at that time in the 16th century AD meant murder. In Hebrew, what does it say? Thou shalt not murder. So you can see the King James Version, okay, is correct in the 16th century. It has not been updated, well, 
actually it has with other versions of the King James. But if you're taking with the King James, very fascinating. To me, God uses Joseph to teach us. Because all of a sudden, the, this story, thousands of years old, is based upon God-based morality. And he's in a pagan culture. There's nobody there that said, remember, it's Ma'at. Matter of fact, Ma'at in, in Joseph's day was not a goddess. It was a concept, like democracy. She became a goddess in the New Kingdom. And it was just a list of 42 laws. Nobody knows where they come from. They call them the laws of Ma'at. He's surrounded by a pagan culture, surrounded by false gods, and God shows us Bible-based morality. Now, I recall Paul's teaching in relationship to this. We're going to end off tonight with this. Going to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 12. Reading from the New American Standard. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. And here it is. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. God-based morality. There's two aspects to it. One, God said don't have sex with a married woman, adultery. That's it. God said no, right? And Paul says, yes, that's true. Run! Run! It's not enough. I, I agree. Run! What did Joseph do? He ran. Kind of left his clothes behind too. He fled. You begin to wonder if Paul is trying to bring back the Joseph story. To me, I made the connection between those. Paul is saying, flee! To a young man, Timothy. Timothy is the leader of the Messianic congregation of Ephesus. He's surrounded in a pagan culture. I wish I could teach you about all the horrendous, horrible things sexually, I mean, in Ephesus that were going on. And here's this young man faced with all of these temptations all around him. And he's the leader of the congregation. And, what is Paul, and what's Paul teaching him? This young guy. Flee! Run! God said no and... Don't hang around. You will be tempted. So in the book, Mashiach ben Yosef by Allah and Bar Avraham, what we have again is Joseph. He's the savior of the world for the bread of the earth. Jesus, he's the savior of your world for the bread of heaven. Jesus is tempted. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. What does he use to defeat the temptation? Torah, the covenant. And last... 1 Corinthians 6.18, I'm going to read from the New American Standard. If some of you have your Bible open and you have this, I'd like to hear what other words you might have. I'm reading the New American Standard. And in 1 Corinthians 6.18, I have flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. What do you guys have for immorality? I've got flee immorality in here. What do you have? Anybody? It says flee whoring. Flee whoring. That's, that's excellent. 
Huh? Flee fornication. Okay. Now, actually, fornication, we'd all agree, is very specific, right? Because you got adultery and fornication, they're different. Sexual immorality. Whoring and sexual immorality are closer to the Greek. Because I believe, my, my, I'm a little upset with the New American Standard, okay? I would say that Hitler acted immoral when he ordered all of the mentally deficient Germans to be killed. That had nothing to do with sex, right? Um, so when it says flee immorality, that's, what do you mean? So when you actually go in there, the Greek word is porneia. Porneia, according to the Thayer's Greek lexicon, is any illicit sexual act. Any, including homosexuality, bestiality, fornication, all of it. Adultery. So it's like Rachel said, it said fornication in hers, sexual immorality is even better, but the thing is, is that this is it. And, it, and what does it say? Flee! Run! This is Paul again. And again, we say, what did Joseph do? And the $10,000 question is, how did Joseph understand that adultery was a sin against God? No Torah was given. No Ten Commandments were given. We don't know. We, again, you, you've heard me say this. We 21st, uh, 21st century Christians, we Western thinkers want an answer for everything. This is Hebrew and the Hebrew mindset. And this is God. How did he get to understand this? We don't know. The Bible is very unclear. It doesn't say it. When is the conscience developed? This gets cool. because, And I'm not going to give you the answer. Because there was so much in Genesis I wanted to teach. And there was a thing I wanted to do on the conscience. When is the conscience developed? Isn't that an interesting question? Remember, God created... Man and woman in his image, yes? When does the conscience come up to realize that what you're doing is wrong? Fascinating. He uses the word Elohim. It's a sin against Elohim. And Elohim is the impersonal name for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? Not the gods of Egypt. Not Ma'at. Nothing. Could be. We don't know. It's used for God. It has three uses. It, it's Elohim is used to indicate the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God. In the beginning, God. Not a spiritual being. In the beginning, God. It's also used for angels. Elohim is also used for that. And it's also used for rulers. Men, rulers. I won't go into that for the Bible verses. So it has three different uses in Hebrew. Not one. Because again, Hebrew. But in that Breshit Elohim bara, you have a masculine plural noun with a singular um, of a singular verb structure. He, Elohim he, not Elohim they. So we come to the end of lesson 88. And now remember, we've seen in previous lessons that Joseph is considered a paradigm. And this this is a recent discovery. I don't think it was known in Jesus' day. Quite definitely, because Jesus was alive. So how could they even recognize, anybody recognize, that Joseph was a paradigm of Jesus when the life of Jesus wasn't even recorded yet? 
this happens more in our time and it's there we can't dismiss it this is for us this is for us now i mean just some things with regards to the connection that joseph is a uh, a paradigm of jesus he is a a, a model he is a savior that well, well for instance just joseph <coughs> His name in Hebrew is Yosef. His name begins with a Yod. Jesus' name is Yeshua. It begins with a Yod. Joseph is the Savior of the world. Matter of fact, they're both Saviors of the world. Yosef is the Savior of the world by the bread of the earth. Yeshua is the Savior of the world by the bread of heaven himself. Joseph and Jesus are both beloved by the Father. And both are sent to their brothers who hated them and tried to kill them. Oh, there's so much more. Uh, I, rep- I basically repeated the links in the uh, notes that follow this uh, podcast. So if you look under the picture of this podcast, you should see a word more or um, click here. There, there might be an arrow that you click down. Uh, but you should be able to find those notes and I've provided three major links that I've done in the past so that if you wanted to study in more in depth with regards to that Joseph is a paradigm of Jesus um, you've got those links that you can access now in future lessons I'm going to present more I'm going to present more ways Joseph prefigures Jesus. And you're going to be so surprised. You won't believe it. Now, with Joseph's confrontation with Mrs. Potiphar, we have another connection. Joseph resisted her advances and did not turn from God. And it's just like Jesus. He was tempted. He was being seduced by the devil, Hasatan, the adversary. He resisted. He did not turn away from God, his father. This is just another, another connection in the awesome list where Jesus and Joseph are mirror images of each other. But Joseph was only the savior of the world because people were starving and they needed bread, the bread of the earth. Jesus is the savior of the world for Jew and Gentile, anyone that comes to him so that we can be with him forever. Now, in lesson 89 that we're about to go to, everything seems to be falling apart. Just when things are looking up, now he's accused of rape. But is he? Mrs. Potiphar is evil. And she lies. I mean, she lies right out from the get-go that she was being raped because she said she screamed. Now, this was something in the ancient Middle East. In the ancient Middle East, whether it's the Israeli culture or the Egyptian culture or the Assyrian culture, one of the things that was common through all the ancient cultures was if a girl, a young woman, a woman, screams 
in the midst of, you might say, a struggle with a man, that shows by her scream that she's against being raped or having sexual intercourse with that man. The scream is the sign that she's against this and that basically she's saying I'm being raped. So she said this, that she screamed when Joseph was attacking her. All of it was lied. It it, it never happened. Now one thing to realize, as I've mentioned, adultery is a capital offense in Egypt, but rape, it's even worse. A man's sexual organs will be cut off and he will be burned to death. That, I, I mean, that's how serious rape was in the ancient Middle East in Egypt. But it didn't happen to Joseph. You say, well, wait a minute, why? Uh, Potiphar. I mean, he's a very, very high up official in the administration under Pharaoh. Why is Joseph spared? Now, we're taking a look at the uh, worldly reason why Joseph might have been spared. What are we missing here? Now, for the spiritual reason, is that we know that God is designing all of this. Designing it in such a way that Joseph would not be executed. Nothing is going to stop God's agenda. (laughs) Joseph keeps on getting it over and over and over again, and it's not done. Perhaps it's like many of us. This is the Torah lesson for us. Some of us have one difficulty after another. One major trouble after another. But do we really believe his word? Do we really? Just consider Psalm 91, verses 14 through 16. Because he has loved me, and we should probably say he or she, because he or she has loved me, therefore I will deliver him or her. I will set him or her securely on high, because he or she has known my name. He or she will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will answer her. I be with him in trouble. I will be with her in trouble. I will rescue him or her. And I will honor him, and I will honor her. With a long life, I will satisfy him or her. And I will let him see my salvation. I will let her see my salvation. Listen to this. In all our ups and downs, in all our reoccurring problems, do we, and if we're truly disciples of Yeshua, we have to be able to stand on this verse. Stand on this verse and to realize God's grace and his love was extended to Joseph and it's extended to each one of us as true disciples of Adonai Yeshua. And we'll remember in Luke 24 50 that Jesus lifted up his hands to bless his 120 disciples before he ascended the Father, just like the high priest daily lifts up his hands.
it could very well be that Jesus blessed them with the ironic blessing. I've taken the ironic blessing and I've turned it into a prayer. I'd like to end our session with that blessing, that blessing that's based upon the high priestly blessing that God gave to Moses, to Aaron, to bless the people. Yevarekeinu Adonai Vishmarkeinu, Yair Adonai Panava Aleinu, Bekunekeinu, Isa Adonai Panava Aleinu, Viasem Lanu Shalom, Vishem Yeshua Adonainu, Amen. So together, let's say this in English. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us and may he give us his shalom. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.